Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to Cry Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Beer is a Conversation is the show that we produce where we sit down and try and tell the story behind the breweries, the brands, the beers, the people, and even the industry itself. It came about because when you write the story of a beer or a brewery, it's always filtered through the mind of the storyteller. But when you get to hear the conversation that took place, the question and the answer, the follow-up question, the pauses and the tone of all of the voices, you get a much truer version of that story. I say that up front now because this episode is an example of why I love this particular podcast. Gage Roads has been brewing for 15 years and it is a unique brewery in the Australian landscape. The journey has been unlike any other and has included launching, publicly listing, struggling, partnering with Woolworths, buying back from Woolworths and relaunching seemingly stronger than ever. As a publicly listed brewery, we probably know more about Gage's business than almost any other brewery. But at the same time, my guest today, co-founder John Hodemaker and Chief Strategy Officer Aaron Heary, keep a low profile personally. And I've long wanted to talk to them and hear their story about the history and evolution of Gage. The best bit is I get to share this conversation with you, and I hope you enjoy it. John Hudemaker and Aaron Heary, um, welcome to Radio Brews News. Welcome to West Australia. (laughs) Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Now, I've just had the brewery tour, and it is the first time I've been to uh, Gage Roads. I've consumed a lot of the beers, and I've had conversations with you both, but it's the first time, and it it was a fascinating opportunity to have a little bit of a look around. So, um, but we might go back and talk about why I found it so fascinating, and that's uh, because Gage Roads is one of the older breweries um, or in, in the modern craft beer age. You go back to, I think the business started around 2002, John? Correct, yeah. So 2002, uh, my brother Bill, who's a bit of a champion of the uh, industry and I'm sure you've met him and, and many have, uh, he was brewing at the Salonanka Hotel and had won um, a raft of awards at the 2002 AIBAs, um, you know, about 11 golden silvers. Uh, champion brewer, champion um, beer, champion brewery. So, uh, yeah, so that's where it all started, and uh, we decided to build a brewery together. Now, what led to you going from a like a relatively small pub brewery that we're seeing a lot of breweries in that model opening now to open something that was 35 hectolitres that was in that um, stage of the industry pretty adventurous scale? Yeah, sure, and uh, it didn't take us long to go from 35 to 50 and then and onwards. Um, but at the end of the day, our vision was to create a regional-sized uh, brewery uh, capable of packaging and selling good quality beer across the nation. Uh, so we did our research, you know, focusing on America, um, as you can imagine, and, uh, yeah, just settled on, on, a, on a model of um, without a venue, uh, more of a, a traditional production brewery, and having the capabilities of producing, um, you know, up to I think it was around three hundred fifty thousand cases of beer at that stage, uh, yeah, and that's that was our that was our plan back then. It's a long time ago now. Yeah, and it certainly was. But what was your thinking? Um, did did you think about making a, a like a more of a tap room that we see now, or was it all what was the production brewery, the, the the natural progression back in those days? Because it, 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 it wasn't just a long time ago, it was a long time ago in terms of the evolution of the beer industry. Yeah, exactly. So um, 
Sort of the uh, the businesses we we aspired to, uh, like Sierra Nevada, New Belgium, uh, Red Hook, those style businesses in America, uh, they they grew without that venue model. Uh, so yeah, we we sort of just didn't move in that direction. But you know, full circle now, we're we're about to uh, uh, commence uh, building a, a venue in Sydney. So um, yeah, I think the, the the industry was really different back then. So uh, there was very very little amount of competitors in the craft beer space. But the big brewers um, were very, um, very dominant. Uh, they controlled all the uh, logistics and uh, access to malt and packaging and all sorts. So there was lots of challenges back then. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we were just more interested in that sort of larger um, production-style brewery. Uh, we didn't, Bill and I didn't feel ourselves to be great publicans at that stage, and, and we were more aligned to producing really good quality beer. And... Talk to me about uh, where the money came from, because when, when you look around, it was a big brewery, um, as I really, by comparison to what was uh, being built around then, but there's a lot of secondhand stainless steel out the back, so... Yeah, did, did, yeah. <laughs> yeah heaps. We, we, um, I started the business with my brother with a $25,000 credit limit on a credit card, uh, believe it or not. So, um, you know... So what would that be? What would $2,002 be in uh, 2019? It's still not a lot of money. Not like a lot of money whatsoever. Maybe forty thousand dollars, forty five thousand dollars or so. Not at all. We started the whole business with secondhand equipment. Uh, it was a lot of fun back then. Um, Aaron came on board uh, very early on. I think you were probably our second second uh, employee. And uh, you know, Aaron and I poured concrete together. We uh, we learned how to mix epoxy together. And my brother went over to America to buy the secondhand equipment and came back about twenty kilos. Heavier, uh, because the place you know where he went to uh, to find it only only served burgers in one joint, um, and he was there for a couple of months trying to get this packaging equipment into a container. So, yeah, it's a lot of shoestring sort of um, stuff, and I think um, that's probably a way a lot of breweries start. Uh, now, a lot of the smaller breweries as well. And, and you came from a business uh, sales background in tiles, I believe. Yeah, so I was manufacturing tile adhesive and, and <laughs> waterproofing compounds. And Matt, I can tell you this is a more fun industry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it taught me uh, the difference between a variable cost and a fixed cost and, um, and those types of uh, business um, financial skills. And that's what I brought to the table. My brother... Uh, brought to the brewing, um, you know, the palate and the, the expertise as a brewer and the passion uh, to, to really get involved in the craft brewing industry. So it was a good marriage. I think every business needs that. Um, if you look at Aaron and I now, we, we're the leaders of, uh, of Gage Roads and we have um, different skill sets and, and that's required. Well, let's talk to Aaron now. So Aaron, you were working at Little Creatures from memory at, at the time you left to come here? Uh, well, not quite. I'd... I'd um... You'd been at Little Creatures? I had been, yeah. So I, I got my start in the wine industry um, at Devil's Lair and that's where I was um, I was working down there with um, Janice McDonald actually and she was the winemaker there and uh, we were there for probably four years together before um, we then went up to Little Creatures to help start that. And I think one of the things that um, maybe attracted um, John and Bill to me was that um, I had had some of that experience in a brewery that was a bit bigger than the Sailor Anchor Hotel. You know, we were packaging. I helped those guys launch the first three beers um, to market, um, commission the brewery. You know, we were peeling, peeling the skins off the tanks and, and, you know, doing all those things you do when you, when you commission a brewery and start up, border brews and, and things like that. And, um, and I think some of that, some of that skill set in, some, in, the, in those bigger breweries, uh, you know, in a bigger brewery than a pub-style brewery, um, probably... Um, 
probably helped me win the day in the in the in the job market. But before I got here, I'd actually spent two years overseas in um, uh, Canada and um, North America, brewing up there in um, Gastown, Vancouver, um, and spending some time through the, the U.S. sort of um, craft beer market. And was actually in um, San Diego at a craft brewers conference there. I was. I just we happened, I happened to win an award and got up on stage and um, you know a, um, one of the other founders um, Peter Nolan was there in the crowd and he saw me get up and win the award and he came over and he said hey Aaron you know and he's I think he was American wasn't he um, uh, you know uh, what are you doing and and I said well I'm I'm uh, just traveling around at that time I had, was in the process of driving a combi van from Canada to to Mexico and I had a few surfboards strapped to the roof and I was drinking craft beer along the way and introducing myself to all these brewers and touring through Sierra Nevada and all these places that I really um you know aspired to to brew beer like one day and um and he said to me well we're starting up this brewery you know um and and um we're calling it Gage Roads and it's in Fremantle and I'm born and bred in Fremantle um it's, it's my hometown I needed a job in about six months and I said well in six months I'm going to be home and uh, how about giving me a job? And he said, well, look me up. And so that's really where I came in. I got back and um, funnily enough, I've, I've got a broken foot now, Matt, and I, I broke my foot surfing on the way back through. So I cut my trip short and, and I started here with a broken foot helping these guys pour concrete and, um, you know, get, get going. And it was a very different, I guess, very different experience being so bootstrapped um, here. Yeah. So, so when you when you launched uh, again, I'm thinking back to my own personal experience with uh, with the brand, and there was a full strength lager and then a mid strength lager, the the, the pills. Um, w- was that always the plan to start with? I mean, that, that's you don't see many breweries launching a craft brewery with that sort of um, beer range at this day and age. Look, I think um, the uh, beer styles to launch that we that first um, were coined was. Uh, the IPA, the Pills and the uh, Pure Malt Lager at the time. That lager um, was uh, basically sort of a Vienna-style type lager, similar to the Sam Adams Boston Lager. And I think I think um, the thinking at the time was that, um, you know, if that can work in the US market um, and, you know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was essentially what, you know, Little Creatures was, was inspired by um, and a number of other brews were probably considered, but that Sam Adams Boston Lager style, um, that Vienna style lager was something that really inspired that first that first lager. Yeah, and the IPA we also launched with was the uh, based on that recipe that Bill had won so many awards with. So, you know, it was just a fantastic product and it was quite it was kind of different because um, at the Salonanka, Bill only had yeast, he only had availability to the um, sort of the... the um, the Cascade A strain, uh, Carlton A strain yeast, and uh, you know, so we used to bring a, a really uh, you know a traditional IPA with a with the wrong style of yeast, I suppose. <laughs> so uh, yeah, anyway, so but it was that, more the, of an English IPA, what we'd call these days. It is now, yeah. I think you know, just the, what we think as craft beer now, just a lot of the flavours, a lot of the different styles has changed mm. over the last fifteen years. But um, yeah, it was a bit more, and it still is. If I mean, you can still buy it, and it's a really successful brand. For and us. that's now Sleeping Giant. Yeah, Sleeping yep. Giant IPA. It's one of the largest selling IPAs in the country. Mm. You decided to build the brewery 2002. 2004 was when you started brewing First in anger. Beer, yeah. yeah. Um, how, how did the beers go when, when you launched? As I said, it was around about that time I remember seeing it on the other side of the uh, continent, um, and it was it was there for a while. You had a, like a, a good brand; it seemed to, to be uh, in demand. Did the business take off from the from the start? Uh, look, it's, it certainly did. Um, 
at the end of the day, we had a philosophy. We, we, we took a big bite and we chewed a lot, right? The good old Aussie uh, saying. So we were, chew- we were busy chewing. It's a big, you know, you've just had a tour of the brew. It's a fairly um, large uh, space. And so we, we sort of, um, the, the lager took off, the IPA took off, and the pills certainly um, was very successful as, as well. In WA, uh, we were well distributed. Over East, it was through an agency, a few agency models. And so we, 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 did, we didn't really have much, much of our brands over there, to be honest. So I think you might have been lucky to find them um, in the I, early I, days. And that was one of the things that really sticks in my mind is it was there and then it wasn't and you'd go, Where, where's Gage Roads? And yeah, so oh, we can't get it. Yeah, that might have been a little bit of that agency, um, you know, sometimes they're pushing it, sometimes they're not type of thing. Um, but anyway, in WA, we got some really good distribution and, uh, and that built our, we built our business from there. In a lot of ways, I wouldn't say that you were pioneers in the, you know, in terms of pushing style boundaries or anything like that. But there wasn't a lot of the uh, distribution. There wasn't a lot of the there. There weren't the um, venues to take the beer that we, that we see now. That there's been an infrastructure that's grown up. How did you go about getting your beer in, in into market um, back then when there was a fairly established uh, duopoly going? Yeah, it was it was um, fairly tough. You know, it's. Uh fairly competitive business. I think it is now as well. Uh, back then, it was a different story. We're really just trying to um, educate consumers to move from a lager product into a, a craft product. I think when you look around nowadays, Matt, a lot of people have underst- or are starting to really understand craft beers and um, it's, it's not such a, a brand new experience. So back then it was. So it was really about getting into a bar, converting them from the, the local uh, you know, mass-produced lager into something a bit um, a bit different, and something a bit boutique. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what was the term back? That was a boutique brewery, <laughs> uh, micro brewery, or, or craft brewery. You know, you take your pick. Well, well, craft didn't come. I mean, craft didn't come until you know late um, to uh, you know first decade of the two thousands. Because I, I always used to be really dirty at John Stallworth that he had microbrewing.com um, back when I started. Uh, writing about it because I thought, oh, he's cornered the market. But, you know, <laughs> craft, craft brewing, uh, or craft.com uh, was uh, completely open. I could have grabbed that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and I suppose that's those early days and the way the market was converting people from lagers into beers might have been a reflection of the style of beers that we started with. Mm-hmm. So so the, the those good, clean lagers were a little bit more character than what they were used to? That good, clean lager was too challenging for most people. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. I mean, some of the reaction to this isn't lager, this isn't lager beer. It's got colour in it and it's got too much flavour. I mean, that's that's some of the the pushback that, that we were getting on, on that, um, you know, the pure malt lager, for example, or the, um, uh, you know, the pills that we launched with was one of the a beer that John um, John's brother Bill won a lot of uh, gold medals for as well in the mid-strength category. And people were going, hang on a second, this isn't a mid-strength? It tastes like a full-strength. Yeah. And yeah. so... Um, it was, I think back then the market was more about um, converting people to drinking craft beer, to trying something with more flavour. Um, whereas now it's, everyone knows what craft beer is, it's drink my craft beer, not your craft beer. So it's a, it's a very different kind of market, um, at, at least in WA where, where we're sort of based, yeah. We'll have to, I've now got two beers on when I have my lager festival um, because one of them is Chuck Hahn's original um, Hahn Premium, which was much more of a pilsner, and he was told that it was too much flavour. So he uh, sort of toned it down a little bit, and I want to get him to brew his original, and we'll get the uh, you know, the, the uh, all-malt lager, the, the pure malt lager that you guys did, um, and sort of uh, resurrect that for yeah. a special one-off lager festival. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's... Um 
Yeah, we. Um, I'd love to do that. That'd be great. <laughs> now, John, you, you so you started brewing around about two thousand and four, but it was soon after that that you listed um, on on the stock exchange. Talk me through the decision, and I'm looking at you, I guess, because at that stage you were still uh, very hands-on with the business, driving the business. Yeah, so um, as I said, we uh, we started the business with a $25,000 credit card limit, um, but we um, we brought in some private investors fairly early on. I think we raised about $2.5 million. That lasted uh, for a few years. That was before you were actually making beer, so... Yeah, that was okay. um, uh, to, to purchase the equipment, um, yep. the uh, tanks and all the rest of it, and, and set the site up. Um, yeah, so, um, and we found it pretty tough going. Uh, we hit a, a ceiling of about 60,000 cases, I talk in cases, um, in the West Australian market. We couldn't really get uh, beyond that very easily, um, and uh, during that time, uh, we listed to uh, to get some access to capital to keep to keep our business running, um, and so that's really the decision around the listing process back in the, back in two thousand and six, was to um, yeah raise a bit more capital to keep the uh, keep the business going to uh, try to continue to grow the brands. Was there pressure from the original investors, the people who put that two plus million in to list um, to to get the capital, and also they could sort of uh, cash out, or they they had an exit strategy, or was it purely just about getting additional uh, capital to to expand the brewery? Purely about getting additional capital and um, and and having a bit more flexibility to expand, um, enter uh, the eastern states markets. Um, add more to our marketing budget, um, you know, and, and obviously marketing expenditure and that sort of stuff. So no, it wasn't really about um, an exit strategy or anything like that. It was, it was really about access to capital, and that's what the, that's what the market, so that's what the ASX is for. The capital markets, markets are there to, to provide capital that people can use it well. But it's not a cheap way for a, a, a still a relatively small business to. Um, to, to, to go about getting capital, you, you need a certain amount of scale and a certain amount of backing in order to, to go through that process. Is, is that a fair comment or a fair yeah, observation? We, we had achieved that scale and, and, and yeah, you do need uh, to tick a few boxes before you can go through the process. Are, are you surprised that you know, we, we've seen business models now, we, we see a lot of private equity, we see the, the big brewery buyouts, we see, you know, we see uh, um, you know, equity um, crowdfunding uh, models. Um, are you surprised that we haven't seen more breweries that once they get scale go the the, the ASX listing route? Um, I'm not sure if I'm surprised or not. Um, there's 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 different ways to fund different things. I think the way that our business evolved and and the um, the desire to be a regional brewery and have some scale uh, without a venue probably added a lot to the way that. Our business panned out. Um, a smaller brewery with with a venue does achieve the cash flows you're getting through the venue to help you continue uh, to build your brands. And you know it's a capitally intensive process. It takes a long time to build a brand. There's lots of barriers to entry. You know there's taxation with uh, excise and there's um, food uh, safety and it's one of the most complicated businesses in the world, I reckon. And um, you know so so um, there's different ways of doing it. Uh, we were at that um, that sort of regional size where listing worked for us. I think also nowadays there's probably a lot more capital available through other sources, whereas back in the day um, it was 
uh, probably probably less so. You know, and nowadays it seems like every man and his dog wants to put money into a brewery. Or the amount of phone calls I get, mate, I'm thinking about starting a brewery <laughs> or investing in a brewery, or there's this in new brewery opportunity coming up. And um, there's so many people interested these days in putting money into a brewery. And I think while that capital continues to flow in through private sources, um, a lot of brewers probably don't need to go down the ASX route. And it is a bit more complicated. There's the obligations on reporting and all sorts of other um, things that you know exposes your business to scrutiny and um, in those early years when where a lot of um, breweries are right now and in a stage where they're um, not necessarily mature businesses um, they they do actually suck money out of the business they're not necessarily profitable in the early stages and do you want that being seen on at ASX level probably not and so you know you can sort of hide that through private investment um, and um, you know tell the story like yeah we're profitable business but um or you know look how, how well our brand's growing and that's great but i think at asx level um investors tend to want to see a return on their investment and profitability um so it's probably something for that next stage where businesses become any start level to become of investment though isn't it you want to your first hope is that you don't lose your money and the second hope is it, it that depends you because some in in, in um uh, when you're trading, when you've got day traders and people trading in and out of your stock, you know, they, they want to try and make a profit sometimes in the short term, whereas, you know, investors that you bring in from a private perspective may, may be uh, there for the long term. And it's not necessarily easy to get your money out of a private um, investment or a private company um, or as it is, is, is in um, an ASX company where it's like, oh, I didn't like that piece of news, oh, I'm going to get out. And all of a sudden, you know, your share price starts to fluctuate. So it's probably something for businesses that are probably at a, um, a level of maturity, which um, the craft market is probably only going to be coming into in the next number of years. That's my take on it. You raised the mic, John. I wasn't sure if you wanted to uh, <laughs> add, add to that. Um, no, no, I think Aaron covered that one. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron did raise the fact that... Uh, I, <laughs> He's got an MBA. Feel free to disagree. I mean, yeah. we argue non-stop all day, every day. We're very different people. That, that, so. that, that, that's like Pete and I, so, <laughs> so it's, it's great to see. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think um, you're right. The access to capital is different now than it was, um, you know, near on 15 years ago or 2006, quite a few years ago. So I think the, uh, the listing process worked really well for us and it still continues to provide access to capital as we grow our business. Just recently, we've uh, raised some capital to put in a canning line, uh, which is uh, really exciting for us. And, and uh, prior to that, we raised some capital to buy the Matzo's brand. So those are the types of things that listing allows a business to do. I think in a private um, you know, investor uh, forum or, or a private equity forum, uh, that, that conversation can be uh, elongated. It can be quite a bit more complicated. So you know, it gives us um, really good flexibility to grow our business. Aaron did talk about the element of ASX listing that means you're basically an open book. Um, you have to publish your results much more transparently than just about any other brewery in Australia except for brew. Um, but it, it, has, has that been a challenge for you? Because you've, you've, you have been very scrutinised over, uh, over the period that you've been listed. I, I didn't find it a challenge. I'm, we're, we're fairly transparent people and always have been with the industry and, and with our investors. So uh, that didn't really change anything. Um, uh, it does create a little bit of uh, scrutiny and news flow. People might be talking about, uh, you know, we might have been uh, very successful in, in um, launching a new beer and, and they might be talking about some financial results, uh, which is, I suppose, something that um, uh, you'd, you'd rather they'd be talking about how great your beer is. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, look, I didn't. Um, I think that's it. Creates some good disciplines in a business. We've got a very professional board, very professional management team, uh, accounting team. We've got good records, and we, we can. We've got some data. We can really make some good decisions around. Um, and that goes as well with uh, quality assurance. You know, as you as you grow scale, you can put systems around making sure that you're really delivering super duper high quality uh, beer all the time. And that also takes some learnings and scales. Do you wish almost that you had some of the opportunities for investment that brewers have now? You know, like even equity crowdfunding, where you just become the coolest kid on the block and then go out and get people to give you free money, basically. Free money sounds pretty good, John. What do you reckon? <laughs> I don't know, Matt. Do you have some free money? <laughs> I, I wish I did. Um, but sorry, that's probably a little bit unfair of, of equity crowdfunding, but you do see that. Do, do you think that things might have gone a little bit differently if you had access to things like equity crowdfunding um, or even private equity, people looking to park some money? Well, we started off with private equity. Um, so, no, I don't think so. Yeah, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure how all other businesses have funded themselves. You know, you've got some, some bigger uh, guys like um, Stone and Wood uh, doing very well. You've got lots of smaller breweries. I think um, a lot of the smaller breweries have been funded through family, family money, family equities, and, you know, friends and, and uh, private investment. I'm not, sure, I'm not too sure about the crowdfunding stuff. Um, has that really hit Australia yet? There's been a there's been a, a there's couple a couple yeah. yeah mate you really need to read Bruce News more you stay <laughs> right on the on, on top of these things <laughs> I think look ultimately if there's more capital sources available there's more options to to brewers and there's a lot of different routes um, you might take I think you know going back ten fifteen years and you know the opportunities that exist. Um, for brewers now, for, as funding, I'm sure that would be great to have more choices and more funding options available. Um, I think the market was a different place um, as well. It, it was um, the awareness of what craft beer was. I mean, people were saying craft beer or boutique beer or, you know, microbrew beer, what is that? You know, and you, you had to explain it to. Now, pretty much most people know what, 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 what craft beer is and the awareness is there. So obviously... Um, you know that awareness through the community opens up a lot a lot of different doors and would you have done things differently who knows john maybe you might have maybe you might not have it's it's a hypothetical really that you'll never know the answer to <laughs> so john are the original investors that tipped in the, the 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 two million plus are they still involved in the business or did they uh sort of uh, sell out at the time of the asx listing uh well they didn't they didn't sell out so they all um received their, their same shares but now in a listed format uh and when i look through the registry or uh, the agm i will uh, bump into quite a few faces um when we first raised capital and actually, we uh, we had a lot of farmers on the registry because the uh, the guys in the wheat belt had a massive um, had a massive season. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, there's a fellow um, I, I saw Paul Cameron at the AGM. He's a he's a farmer up in Geraldton and a, a few others. So look, it depends. Everyone's got their own different investment horizons. You know, some people have stuck around. Some people have moved on. Um, we've got about uh, two thousand shareholders now. Um, the uh, employees of Gage Roads own about 20%. Uh, I'm really proud of that. Uh, it's uh, not just um, the uh, upper echelons, but we've worked to make sure the guys that are uh, running um, teams on the packing line or, or the brewing uh, teams all have a little bit of skin in the game. Um, that's really good. And, you know, we have uh, institutional investors now. So about 30% of our registry are 
like the super funds um, that you and I and everyone in Australia contributes their funds too, and uh, they've been investing in Gage Road, so that's and been fantastic. And we've reported on that recently. Yeah. There's been some uh, substantial uh, reinvestment or sort of ongoing investment or increased investment uh, for, for at least two in particular. You, you, you listed on the uh, stock exchange, you've got the, uh, the, the um, capital um, investment. What, happened, you know, what, what came next? Talk us through... Well, I think um, the next uh, big uh, what year? Trans- what year was the what year to be list? Two thousand and six. Yeah, so, so it was relatively quickly after you uh, you launched. Yeah, so the next uh, big transition for our company was really um, we found it again hard to uh, to really get strong distribution, uh, and still back in the days when the big guys really had everything locked up. So even even talking to Metcash or ALM um, and those types of organisations was was really hard work. Uh, and we ended up doing a, uh, a deal in 2009 with Woolworths. So that was, I, I suppose, the next major sort of transition of our business. Uh, it was a fantastic deal. Uh, Woolworths at the time needed someone to brew some, uh, some products for them. We needed to fill our mash tun and, and, and keep our machinery at full, at full capacity. Uh, and we also needed a, 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 route to mar- a really good route to market, especially on the East Coast. So... Uh, the basics of that deal was that we brewed some beer for them and they helped um, distribute our beer for us. And, um, and over the next seven years of working um, with... And, and they are the largest uh, retailer in the country. They have about 46% of the, the bottle shop market. Um, and, of course, they've also got ALH um, with uh, about 360 pubs there. So really good partner to have. And, yeah, seven years on to that um, with, with them... Uh, our brands had, had grown really significantly and I think uh, become about the fifth largest craft brand in the country. Yeah, so that's, I think that's the next stage in our life and, then, and we, can, we can talk more about the, the stage after that because we've continued to evolve. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. But again, I'm thinking of my experience as a, as a beer writer going through that, we've seen um, the, uh, the, the original um, IPA, you, you had a split where it was the... Um, it became the sleeping giant, and then you had the the other uh, more modern, you know, West Coast style IPA. Um, I'm trying to think With of atomic, the, the atomic. We, we sorry, of course, we, we, which we're now drinking. Um, so you had you, you did a bit of brand shift. You had a launch then. Then uh, you had a managing director, and I remember going to a launch for the famous Vortex bottle um, with Cut, um, which was the, uh, sort of the, the, the low-carb beer. So you've, you've had a lot of product development come through. And it, I've, I've always, as an observer, never felt that there's been that much cut through with, with, with some of the brands. Is that a fair observation to make, do you think? Or I've been sitting on the um, production side of the fence for, for many for many number of years and watched numerous um, ideas come and come and go and I think um, the um, I think initially you know like we were talking about some of the lagers were probably a bit too challenging for the lager market um, splitting um, atomic and IPA into the into um, well from the IPA into um, the, the atomic and sleeping giant that was really good atomic's gone on to be a really successful pale ale for us and um, sleeping giant also in its own space I think that was that was really smart but <clears throat> again like I can't emphasise enough how bootstrapped the business was and just how hard going it was. John said it was really tough. Like our head sales guy, when we used to run packaging, used to run the depal, the CEO used to stack cartons on the pallet 
um, you know, Bill would run the labelers, John would run the filler, and I would coordinate the whole thing and try and get beer from the tank into the filler, and, and that would be packaging. You know, that would be packaging day. And then that would go into a warehouse, and then everyone would feverishly run off and do their jobs trying to sell it. And so, um, you know, in in that sort of an environment where we, we were undercapitalized compared to a lot of businesses and capital wasn't necessarily available to us um, in, in the way we wanted, uh, there wasn't cash flow coming in from a, um, uh, from a venue. What we were looking to, okay, what other options are there? What other brands could we launch into the marketplace? And so, um, you know, different marketing managers and, and people at the time have different ideas about you know, segments of the market that are growing, the cider's growing in Europe, you know, let's launch a cider or, you know, low-carbohydrate beer's coming, that's probably where Cut came from, um, the Vortex bottle, you know, how can we differentiate and how can we try to, um, you know, um, essentially um, grow our brands uh, faster than what they're growing so that we can sort of cover the, the cost of the business. And um, I think ultimately... Um, you know the craft beer market continued to grow and mature and, and over the over the years has probably become easier to penetrate that part of the market but back then it was it was it was much more it was much more difficult and so um, we ended up at a at a time with a portfolio of uh, products that were quite um, scattered across the market everything from you know lager beer to IPAs to craft beer um, and I think the one thing that we, we always came back to is we knew we could brew great quality beer. So we would enter these beers in the awards and we would win gold medals for them. But trying to get them on, to convince someone to put them on the shelf and then a consumer to buy them, that was, that was a much harder task and with the market being so locked up. So um, some of the strategy came back to product strategy. Let's just launch more, more beers and win more golds and try and, try and um, enter different parts of the market and see what sticks. And so I think the point of the... Um, uh, the, the business that we're at, that we're talking about right now, was yes, we did have quite a range of different products in the marketplace, um, and um, and I think Woolworths at the time, um, we we might we we sort of um, were able to to get them on shelf. Um, we I think at that point in time probably rationalised the brands a little bit, um, but yeah, we had access to the market all of a sudden, and that was such a relief and such a such a great thing for the business um to finally have that access to market that we we had we'd been craving and really really had been blocked out of i'll just put a pin in the woolworth thing for a second because i want to come back to it but just listening to you talk about all of the things you've learned as you go on I, I, over that time, you've stepped from the brewing side into management side. You've now got an MBA, so you've gone back and studied into the business world. Do you think you learned more from running this business or did you learn more from studying business at a university level? Like, it, um, I absolutely... Look, the, I've got this saying, you learn a lot more from kicks in the teeth and pats on the back and this business has been... The, the beer business in general is one of those ones where you, you do get a lot of pats on the back, but you can also get kicked in the teeth pretty hard too if you get things wrong. And um, I think through our journey in this business, um, 
I sort of joke with my mates, we've done, I've done five MBAs and there's been very different phases of my life where um, I've been in the brewing side as a, a professional brewer and just absolutely mad about craft beer and travelling everywhere and drinking everyone's beer and trying to brew as much as possible to, um, you know, then all of a sudden at very young age also being put in a position of responsibility and having to manage people, which was not something anyone really gets taught. You just all of a sudden are a manager and all these people are relying on you for their lives and schedules and things like that. And I think um, a, a couple of those phases, like at, at the point where we went um, and did, a, did the um, deal with Woolworths, we were brewing about 50,000, let's say 50,000 cases a year. And I think I was telling you earlier that the very, in, within 12 months, with no extra infrastructure or capital in, because you, you just, the deal turned on, we had distribution overnight, and it was like, start filling the shelves. Yeah, I think um, we were 350. We was did 350,000 in the first year. year. Yeah, so, the first year. So that growing as a really young brewer turned brewery manager, um, the only way to do that was to put boots on the ground. And hire a bunch of brewers and train them as quickly as possible and it all of a sudden turned into a 24-hour a day seven-day-a-week operation the following year we did a million cases so we've gone from 50,000 cases to a million cases and um in two years and then 1.4 the year after and and 1.4 so the growth when you think about that and and people that are out there listening to this that own breweries think about you know out of a 35 hectolitre brewery trying to start to brew those types of numbers it was just staggering and the amount of pressure and stuff that came on so at the time there was a lot of um, pressure for me to um, take on uh, more and more responsibility there was more and more people coming on and with more people come become more problems and um, I used to think um, falsely that the bigger you got the easier it got Um, I used to look look you know look at some of these breweries all their shiny stainless and everything and think wow that's must be so great, you know, to, to be bigger because it's easier. It's actually Just harder. Sit in the office and press <laughs> buttons. Eh? Well, you know, when you – I was thinking about this um, this morning, brushing my teeth, you know, when you – humans are, th- are creatures of habit and we do things out of habit to, because it makes our lives easier. So when there's one guy in a brewery, he comes in, he starts the coffee machine, usually the first thing he does, but then he turns the lights on, turns the boiler on, does he does it in a sequence and that se- – you know, then he measures his pH and he does – the way he brews that beer is the same every single time because it's naturally standardised just purely because of the habitual nature of human beings. Um, add two people, well, there's two different habits. Add three people, there's three. Add four, five, six, ten, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All of a sudden, if, unless you've got very good systems, very good processes and very good management um, techniques, uh, it's, it, it very quickly becomes out of control. And... That, um, to me, I got to this point where I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm being expected to run this thing. There's all this pressure on, on, on me. I need, to, I need to learn more than... I'd been studying, you know, technical brewing and, I, you know, all the IBD courses and all the rest of it. Um, and that's all great, but that doesn't teach you how to run a brewery or a production facility. And, um, and so that's where I said to John and... Um, Nick at the time, um, who was one of the CEOs at the time, said, "Look, I've got to, I've got to really st- study um, management and business, and I'm really interested in studying this side of it." And I, a lot of people go into that type of study because they do it because they want the job. I already had the job. <laughs> I just wanted to learn um, how to what, do it, better. how to do it, and what I didn't know. <laughs> so that that's a really long-winded way of saying. I think I think I um, 
I, I did it out of necessity and I took a really long time to do it because um, I really wanted to learn what was in that, that course and I really wanted to understand every single last detail of, of that. So I took you know, the, you know, almost the maximum amount of time that it could do to do it. I studied in the evenings and, um, and the rest of it just so that I could become a better manager, a better a leader and be um, probably fairer to my people, the people that were working for us and, um, and to the business and our shareholders. And did it do that? I th- look, I don't know, John, maybe you can answer that. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> no, I think... Let's um, get a bit of 360-degree uh, feedback. Um, yeah, I'll just walk out of the room <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> no, the MBA, the MBA Aaron did was, uh, was, was re- really good for him, I think. Very impressive. And um, he's now become uh, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Strategy Officer. And being able to um, pull yourself out of detail and, and really think about the more uh, longer-term holistic goals of the business um, and then uh, create some ideas around that and then shift that into things that actually happen on the ground and, and, and deliver on it. I think that's uh, certainly the MBA helped you, um, I think, put structure around all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a unit in the MBA called Strategy, which I just absolutely loved, and it really brought together all the elements that you learn, you know, marketing, the, the, economical, the economic side of it, um, there's um, you know the market you know all the market forces that are happening what your internal capabilities are of a business and all I mean all this boring kind of stuff but ultimately when it comes to creating strategy and executing strategy you really need to draw on you know sales marketing um, and and some of these you know production some of these elements that you have no idea about um, and so that to me I I, I love that and um, during the course of the MBA uh, we went up to China we did a study tour and. Um, you know, we were we were we're probably jumping forward a little bit, but we were um, looking at uh, you know manufacturing businesses up there and you know widget manufacturers and, and stuff like that. And I came back saying with these ideas, saying, John, you know, this this contract brewing game that we were in, um, there's there's not there's never going to be any money in this for us. We're just always going to get screwed down to the lowest the lowest uh, marginal cost. So let's let's um, start to really think about how we can properly um, re-establish ourselves as a branded business. We, we just, we're just passionate about beer and loved craft beer and I saw so much opportunity for that and that's, I don't know, that's where sort of things really kicked off during that process. So as I was studying, we, we started to formulate together um, these, these strategies. To strategy. that's the, the that's yeah, that's, that's the early days. that was where that was born. Yeah. Okay, well, I did want to talk about that, but just before we do that... Um, we were talking about Woolworths and the monumental growth that you had over a fairly short period. Um, it, it was obviously good for the business in a numbers sense. Do you think that the Woolworths deal hurt you as a brand? Oh, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about hurt us as, as a brand because um, it, it depends on who you're asking. To consumers? Well, 46% of the consumers loved it because they were you know, obviously buying a lot of it through the Woolworths channel. So it depends, like... There's um, lots of people that comment around beer, and I think some people, yes, it might have hurt our brand. Well, see, I'd, I'd argue that Lorry Boys and Three Pub Circus or whatever, they're selling to, to some extent as well, but no one's loving the brand. Yeah, well, that was actually one of the things that's uh, a little bit different for us. So the, the brands that we produced for Woolworths are completely separate brands. So our own brands, we continued to market and promote and I'd, no, they were identified yep. as our own brands, and so we've met, we've managed to grow them really well. I think there's a, um, you know, the probably certainly amongst some of the some of the commentators in the pointy end of craft 
um, that's not a great story. No one likes that. Um, you know, corp, the corporate aspects of it, even the ASX piece, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily um, like. But the, um, yeah, I think the un- underlying uh, all of that, we were able to build a brand by being on the shelf and producing really, really good quality beer, um, award-winning beer at... Um, uh, essentially, what we feel is pretty good value to the consumer and pricing, and um, that was that able that was able to grow our brand. So from when we started with Woolworths to when we finished with Woolworths, there was much more brand equity when we finished with consumer at a consumer level. So I'd argue that it increased our overall um, brand equity um, a, a lot, but it did um, maybe it wasn't necessarily the most popular decision at the time with many of the um, the people who were really passionate about the craft industry and probably saw it as a different route to market than to, or to growing a brand than what you know traditionally had been done yeah and look this chat is a very personal one for me because as i said i've you know, sort of grown up to a certain extent with uh, gauge roads as, as being a constant and i try and step outside of the beer bubble as much as possible when you are immersed in the industry but at the pointy end sure there was sort of like a whole lot of thing but it's interesting just how deeply aware i found the market to be aren't they the Woolworths brand you know even even gauge roads have you found that at all or sorry, this predates the return to craft strategy yeah, again, I'll answer that by saying it depends who you ask. So if I go into the community and ask a consumer, that that, that that wasn't the answer I was getting. If I was asking someone, maybe not yourself, but someone that's really involved in the craft beer industry, then, yeah, they, they were asking about our relationship with Woolworths and, and this and that. So C- Certainly, it's, I think more so than damaged our brand with the consumer, I would say um, potentially there was brand damage with other retailers. <laughs> That's a different question. Yeah, because, you know, the retailers uh, compete fairly fiercely as well. And so I suppose that's how we ended up um, deciding we really wanted to move into this return to craft strategy. Explain what you mean by that. Well, you've got um, the, the, the bottle shop market is made up of 46% Woolworths, 20% um, Coles and um, 34% of the uh, independent retailers who are pretty much, you know, are running through Metcash. And, you know, that's probably broken into maybe five or six or eight different groups. Um, yeah, so having um, Woolworths as a partner, um, not only just uh, with distributing our product, but as shareholders, um, that didn't. Uh, we, we were never um, obliged not to sell, or we couldn't. Uh, it wasn't forced that we didn't sell to other people. It was a non-exclusive arrangement, but it we wasn't. Sell uh, to anybody, it just wasn't an easy conversation <laughs> because people <laughs> okay. were feeling, oh well, you know, if I buy products through you, twenty-five percent of uh, what I'm what I'm going to pay you is going through to Woolworths, which is a major competitor of ours. So that was, um, you know, that was problematic. The, the, the origins of Return to Craft came when you, when you were studying and looking at strategy and looking at what the potential was. How did the actual move into Returning to Craft come about? How was that conversation when you went to a 25% shareholder and sort of said, look, guys, we love you, but we don't want to be with you anymore? Uh, well, it, it probably, it wasn't... Um it was a mutual bene- mutually beneficial thing because all divorces are. <laughs> no, well, I mean, if you if you think about the contract brewing market um, uh, in two thousand and nine when we did the deal versus um, you know later on when 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 re- when we announced the return to craft, the market had shifted quite a lot. Back then, there wasn't access to to um, 
uh, contract brewing for for private label, um, and you know that private label is always going to be a part of the market. They needed they needed it. Um, they were going to get it from somewhere, and um, th- they needed us, and we needed them. And that that investment, initial investment in Gauge Roads, just gave us a little bit more capital for us to then put into tanks and get some scale. And that's been one of our competitive um, advantages, I guess, moving forward, is that we are we do have a bit of scale now. But that um, you know, unwinding that at the, as, as at a point in time, Woolworths didn't need us anymore, and we didn't need them anymore. Um, we had basically filled the pipe. John likes to say, you know, we had saturated their shelves with as many products as we possibly could. We were selling as much as as what we felt we could through that that channel. A lot of the other market was closed off to us, and. Um, for them, they they didn't necessarily need to be vertically integrated into the manufacturing part of of business anymore. There's, it's um, there was a lot of other options out there from a contract brewing perspective, and we've seen a lot of contract brewers open up, especially as the craft markets boomed and people need um, to you know pay, help pay some of their fixed overhead. That part of it, um, people are willing to to contract brew, whereas previously that just wasn't open. And so um, when it came to having that conversation. Um, there was as much um, willingness on the other side of the fence to have that conversation as that. It wasn't us going to them, going, "We want out." That's absolutely not. And and I think they was the the you know, John. Maybe you can talk to this, but Woolworths were just as willing to um, to exit the relationship as what we were. And I think they saw for us that was good for us, and we saw for them that that was good for them as well um, to do that. Absolutely, um, and. And the relationship still is, is nice and strong with Woolworths, so they're still one of our major customers, and we sell uh, our beers really successfully through them as well. So uh, it wasn't like, a, as you mentioned, a divorce. It was more of a just um, they recognising that our business needing to grow further needed access to different markets, and I actually really respect them for um, you know uh, recognising what we needed to do for our business and our shareholders, and get 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 involved with the uh, the independent trade. Um, and the on-premise trade. So when you when you do it's a twenty five percent shareholding that you effectively bought back, you publicly listed. I understand. How did you um, structure that deal? Um, and I believe that there was a fair bit of investment from you guys personally. Yeah. So we did a capital raising uh, in order to raise the funds to buy back the Woolworth shares. Uh, that was the basics of it. And we also um, raised some capital to pay down some debt at the time. Yeah, that's that was. Um, I suppose that's the going back to the beginning of a conversation. That's the benefit of being a listed company is that if you've got a good plan and you can show um, investors uh, where where you're going and how you're growing, uh, then you have some access to capital to be able to do those sort of things. We believed in it enough to back it as well with our, our some of our own money, the, the money that we'd scrimped and scraped over the years together, and um, yeah, so we, we put money into that into that as well, into part of that capital um, uh, raising. Okay, so what is returning to craft? Well, I think I think um, it was just that was a, a name that we we gave it, I guess, but I mean really it's about returning to. Um, proprietary brands I guess or owning our return to um, owning our own our, our brands um, and being in charge of I guess our own destiny in a way in that in that, in that respect I think uh, the key was uh, the business became independent again uh, independence is really important uh, in the craft industry and with consumers um, 
and it opened up some new markets to us. So we say new markets, not new markets, but for us there are new markets. So um, the independent channel, uh, coals, and on-premise. Um, and so returning to craft for us was really taking our brands to different channels to market. Um, our business didn't really have a sales capability to do that. Uh, we had been busy uh, working just with the one partner. So um, building a sales team was really important, um, and that was the first initial, um, you know, the, the initial planks of the strategy. We, we got that done over the last few years. Uh, we now have a sales team of, of about um, 26 people nationally, uh, head off in Sydney. Um, and our brands have been growing really, really strongly uh, in the independent trade. So Single Fin's, the, I think, the fastest growing craft beer in the country at the moment, uh, which is really amazing. And... Um, and the, those independent retailers have really embraced our brands and uh, they actually welcomed, welcomed us with open arms, really warm hearts, and it's been very successful. Uh, we've also got, you know, part of that sales team is also busily selling uh, draft beer on-premise, and that's been growing really strongly as well. Uh, so that's what the returning to craft was about, becoming independent, building a sales and marketing capability to uh, take our brands to some different channels to market in which we weren't traditionally strong. Um, and really, when you think about it, that's opening up um, uh, 54% of the beer market or, 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 the, or the, the retail market to us. Was it there any coincidence that you, I, I think you took home champion beer um, with Little Dove the mm. year that you announced to returning to craft? Is that, yeah. am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, that yeah. was, I think it was 2016. Was we won that, champion yeah. beer for Little Dove. I mean, at the time... Um, you know, there's a lot that go that has to go in. I mean, uh, there's some, um, you know, well-respected people in this industry. They called Gage Roads the Rubik's Cube, you know, to try and unwind it. So we we had at the time we had um, uh, to look at rebranding um, or tidying up, I guess, what we stood for as a brand, and you know, what does Gage Roads stand for? And I think at the time we we sort of felt that you know we'd named the brewery during. Um, you know, during the early years after that sort of West Australian coastal lifestyle. And Gage Roads, for those that don't know, is the shipping channel between Fremantle and, and Rottnest Island. And it really, for us, embodied everything that is to be an Australian, being coastal and being... We, we like to think of ourselves as the outback, you know, the people with the, the Cobra hat and the outback, but really most of us live near the, near the coast and when we have a holiday, we go to the beach. And that's the way we certainly grew up. We're surfers, we're divers, we're fishermen, we love to go out in the boat and swimming in the ocean, all that sort of stuff. And so we felt that Gage Roads really um, needed to be, um, really represent that coastal lifestyle. And so we, we came up with a number of um, new uh, brands um, single fin being one of them. Um, Narinet was a was a mid strength that we came up with, and Little Dove um, was a beer. I, I said to our brew team, um, "I want a beer, just no holds barred. Let's just brew a, a great beer, a beer that you know we really think um, uh, is something that you want to brew, and no commercials about it, nothing. Just brew a great beer. Um, we know we can do it. Uh, let's 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 go about it." And um, the name Little Dove. There was a there was a, a, a ship at the time called the Doifkin. Uh, Dirk Hartog from memory. Yeah, or? and that's right. And it was parked. There, there, there's a grade four education that didn't go to waste. <laughs> <laughs> it was parked. It will it, in, and and converted in in Dutch. That that uh, means Little Dove. And so it was parked out front of um, the Little Creatures Brewery in Fremantle. And 
and I thought, wow, these guys haven't named a beer a Little Dove. Like, why not? Um, at the time, we had we had launched it in um, in uh, in Keg, and we were just selling it just through in WA through Keg, and then at one champion champion beer. And I remember being on the stage at uh, the AIPAs, and my phone had started ringing before I got off the stage, and um, I did a couple of interviews, maybe yourself and a, and a couple of others, and then. Uh, immediately called Dirk and said what are you what are you Dirk's our, our head brewer head back here at the time and I said what are you brewing and he said um something or other and and I said to him just um just finish that one up and put a couple <laughs> of batches a little dove in because we're gonna need it <laughs> and and that and then we and we launched we launched that but um it, it wasn't necessarily um part of um us we didn't really go out and try and win an award with that beer it just Sometimes you get lucky, and but it's um, a hell of a coincidence. Like, what was there any? Do you instinctively feel that there was any relation between the, the, the strategy and your focus and winning that major award in the same year? It was in that we had a route to market to sell it. So we had um, at the time we'd committed to the strategy before we had um, bought the shares back from Woolworths. In that we were currently representing our our brands. Um, to some of the small bars in, in WA um, with a sales guy. We'd put on um, a, a marketing person to, to help to do the rebrand and um, to, um, you know, get pre- in pre- preparation for that. And so we had a we had the ability now to brew small batches that we and play around and do some things in limited release space that we wanted to do um, and then and brew new brands and then put them out in, in draft form. We didn't necessarily need to have the commitment of um, the retail partners to... Um, to launch that and so um, that did give us the flexibility to play around a bit more and do a little bit more um, experimentation which we hadn't necessarily had the opportunity to do uh, previously so um, it really was a case of then going well there's there's, we've got no restriction we can do this through the keg market let's um, let's let's have a go another component of the returning craft strategy is the brand enhanced strategy so you've got some major sponsorships including the uh, very impressive Opta Stadium here in, in WA. How, how's that going for you? Is, do, do you get a feeling that when people are at the footy or at the cricket and they're trying the beer, they are they're going, how good's this? And going down to their local and ordering it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's been phenomenal for us. I think during the footy season, so we, we're now a year and a bit into it. Uh, the first year we did about 1.1 million litres through the stadium. And I think it made a, um, a big jump in consumer awareness about our brands and about our brewery, Gage Roads. And, um, yeah, sort of commentary I get even just recently on the weekend, uh, a fellow said to me, uh, I never heard of you until I tried it at the footy and now all I drink is single fin. You know, those those types of things are, uh, are happening and, yeah, it's made a big, big impact. I think the fact also it was a brand new stadium and so it was a real step up in people's uh, experience from what they were previously seeing at you know when they went to watch a game of football and um it used to be you'd go watch a game of, of football at the old stadium and you knew what you were in for as far as the beer choices that you had there and so people would go and you know preload in the yep. <laughs> in, in the and pubs actually or, bagging the beer was like the pastime pastime yeah you drank it almost like you drank you, you had to drink at that that old stadium under sufferance and okay. there was and, you know one brand which is, you know, really forcing it onto consumers. Really forcing it down their throats. And so we took a view that, well, we're small, we're flexible, 
we're close. We're 14 kilometres away from the stadium. We're close. We can brew limited release beers. We've got a limited release beer um, called the Best Red that we're about to do through the stadium for the Man, Man U game that's going to be on a couple of Man U games that are going to be on there. So we've got the flexibility and we're small enough to be able to do that. And what we really wanted to do was to give consumers choice um, at that stadium. So if they don't want a single fin, they can have an Albi. Maybe they can have a, a limited release beer that's there as well. And there's a cider, there's ginger beer. There's all types of things. At Atomic that we've got there. There's all different options for um, a consumer and really change the game and give people what they were demanding in the marketplace, which was choice. And if you want to drink a, a, a lager beer, that's great. Go out and drink a lager beer. But if you want a, um, a you know a single fin or a, or a craft, you know. Um, a little dove you can get little dove at the stadium and that full strength or do you, have you had to tweak it to bring it down to mid-strength well there's, there's some areas of the stadium are full strength some are okay. mid-strength right. um little dove is is uh in the full strength areas okay right? yeah. yeah but um we we have had to tweak some of the beers and um in in some of the ga areas but that's uh um you know a minor uh, you know, obstacle to be able, being able to get people to be able to drink something that, that is, you know, an unfiltered craft beer at a major sporting stadium in Australia and um, give them that choice. It's been, I think it's been terrific uh, for, the, for West Australian um, consumers and sporting fans and it's been terrific for our brand as well and the stadium uh, over the moon. So I think it's been a real, um, a real eye-opener that f- I think for the market in general, for craft beer market, but also um, that, you know, we can provide people choice at stadiums and they can, they can have great, you know, drinking experiences um, than, and better than what they have experienced before. Would you encourage other stadiums? Like, do you think it's worked out financially for the stadiums? Because what I always hear from big events and big stadiums is we need the money that the um, alcohol tie comes in. And my understanding of your deal is that you, you pretty much give them, like you, you don't make money from the, the beer, but it's all marketing for, for, for you guys. So they make a pretty good margin on, on, on the beer that they're selling. Is that a good snapshot of it? Yeah, it's a, we, we call it a brand or wash its own face um, style of marketing where people are trialling the beer. Uh, we've got excess capacity so we can make the beer and um, at the end of the day it doesn't add earnings to our business. It doesn't cost us either. So our view was, you know, how fantastic, 50,000 people trying your beer every weekend and it's cost you nothing. And is that a good result for the stadium? Like, w- would you encourage stadiums around the country to... Well, absolutely. And But the, the, the financial um, details, which I can't really divulge, no, absolutely. But the financial details around the stadium deal that we did are, are no different to um, any stadium deal around the country. Uh, so I think it's fairly similar for all brewers, big or small, when they go to engage with that type of event. It becomes a brand in hand marketing um, opportunity for the brewer. For you, but does it work out for the um, stadium? Is it a better result that Optus has got you guys on than... Absolutely. I think um, yeah, 1.1 million litres through the uh, Optus Stadium's an amazing result for them. You've got no idea what they were doing <laughs> to be there. Everyone used to like to... Uh, when it was at um, Subi, yeah. uh, six or 700,000 litres. Okay. Yeah. okay. Now, I know John's got to go, so we'll very quickly talk about Atomic, You know y- y- your strategy. So you've returned to craft, you've uh, got accolades for the beer, you've got into stadiums, now you've crossed the country. T- talk us through the strategy there. Um, yeah, so um, Atomic, for uh, as I mentioned, you know, Gage Roads was... Um, we really wanted to... to 
um, have that represent that that coastal lifestyle. And we had a brand that was sitting in Gage Roads um, called Atomic, which was Atomic Pale Ale, and it was the biggest selling gut beer that we had in New South Wales, Victoria, and South Australia. And so we we really saw this opportunity for it, but it didn't quite fit in our in our um, portfolio. And at the same time, we wanted a a new brand that we could um, really experiment with and play with and uh, try different hops and um, really push the boundaries as as far as um, you know craft beer goes with with um, with a new with a new brand and Atomic we felt had a had a big enough name that it could carry its its own its own brewery and its own brand we started thinking well what if we what if we gave this its own brewery we built a brewery and created you know put a brewer in there an authentic sort of uh, venue and um, in, a, in, a, in a pretty cool kind of place. Obviously, Sydney and Melbourne being the sort of it was leading us, leading our market made sense. So we kind of looked at a, at Melbourne. We looked at Sydney, and um, uh, it made for us. We went. I was sitting in the airport and I was flicking through um, the uh, realestate.com and this. I saw this site come up in um, in uh, in Redfern, and. Um, and he, I called, said, he called me and I went out to look at it. Yeah, I said to John, just drop past this this site. It just looks great and it's on a corner and it's it's an amazing looking site. So can you um can you just drop past and have a look? And and he calls me back about half an hour later, he's like, it's, it's great, you know, it's, I love it, you know. And and so we, we really that's where it really started to get some traction. And so we thought, let's um let's really uh, breathe some life into this. And so now um the atomic uh, brewery will be yeah, opening up um uh, in Redfern, probably early, very early 2020, and um, we're really, uh, really excited that it's going to take a, a bit of a different path, a more urban kind of gritty kind of path to to um, where the Gage Roads brand is, and and um, and be able to brew some really hop-driven, exciting kind of beers, limited release, single single batch, in a, in a really small um, bespoke kind of space. So we're really um, excited about it. I was in Sydney on. Tuesday and wandering through there, the Marrowfield, uh, that, that that area, and um, seeing how many breweries. How do you feel that you'll 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 fit in there? Like, on one hand, there's the whole um, collaboration. Um, you know, so everyone's collaborating, but they're also in competition. Um, are, are you going to play into that, or you know, do, do you add something to to that area? I don't think we wanted to um, go in and compete with anybody and go and step on top of anyone. So for us, um, Redfern. There was there was no other breweries in Redfern, and um, I actually quite like the notoriety of Redfern. You know, when you say that name, people think of their own kind of history and, and what have you. And I kind of like the idea that it's this gentrifying kind of kind of space. Um, we didn't want to go in there and you know take business away from other brewers or outcompete anyone or anything like that. Really, we were just looking for a home for our brand. And for us, it's not so much about necessarily making a bucket load of money out of it. It's it's about having a home for um, for a project we were really like I guess it's a side project by Gage Roads that we're really excited about um, we I kind of feel that um, in many of these places like you look at Portland and Oregon for example and and um, you know I don't even know I've lost count of how many breweries are there but people beer tourism is like a big thing and so people go there and they bar hop from one to the next to the next to the next and um, if you can be a part of that and be a meaningful part of that and um, you know, participate with the community, and hopefully we can um, participate with some of those brewers. Um, I, I, I can only think that it's going to be good for everybody um, in that space. And uh, as far as for 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 Gage Roads goes, it's a new venture for us. It's pretty exciting. We've never been in 
hospitality before, um, but um, I can't think of a better place or um, place to start, I guess, for us, for the Atomic Brewery. So, yeah, we're really excited. So after Atomic, what's next? <laughs> for the, um, the people in the industry and, and not necessarily the consumers, we've started a... Um, a distribution sales and distribution um, arm of our business called Good Drinks, which is going to help to uh, distribute and um, and sell uh, the various brands that we um, now now uh, own. So when I guess John first started the business, he's um, we were set, we were brewing Gage Roads beer with Gage Roads salespeople wearing Gage Roads shirts and um, uh, with Gage Roads marketing people and that sort of thing, and that's kind of changing now. So we've got. We're very tr- we're trying to be as transparent as possible, so we're not hiding anything. It's very clearly written on Atomic that it's a beer project by Gauge Roads, and we want people to know that they are interrelated. Um, but um, yeah, so good drinks for us is our sort of way of being able to equal give equal um, representation to each of our each of the brands that we own. So we're now becoming a um, uh, yeah like a house of brands as opposed to a branded house and um, I think that's something that we're really developing we've moved that our head like something you learned in an MBA yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, well we're, and we've moved our head sales office to Sydney as well so a, a big part of um, uh, we're, we're really committed to being a national a national brewer and being part of um, a meaningful part of the um, the uh, uh, you know New South Wales Queensland and Victoria and, and South Australia you know the, the east coast um, and I don't want to forget Tassie and ANT and ACT in there. We we really we'll want to be <laughs> no. We, we really want to um, be able to represent our products and 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 our beers to everybody. And John's got this great saying. What is it, John? Which is uh, great. <laughs> it's our philosophy. Uh, great craft beer in every person's fridge. So that, we don't want it to be um, just inner city, you know, cool bars and that type of thing. We really want to be. Um, uh, offering craft beer to everyone and when I go out to the wheat belt here um, people are not um, they, they love craft beer they just can't buy it they can't get the beer they want they're like oh, I love your beer I want it where can I get it from and you, sorry it's not stocked in the local you know how do I get hold of it and um, the idea being is that we really want to be able to um, represent our brands to, to the whole country last question it's been a 17 year roller coaster for you both would you have done anything differently Oh, I think probably half of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've you know you asked about the MBA and and that sort of stuff. My philosophy is always you know learn by doing, and when you learn by doing, you you make a few mistakes, and and you, that's that's part of the learning curve, you know. And uh, we talked about all the brands that have created over the years, and you know it's like bouncing a basketball, and one day it rings true, and you, you know that's the one for you. So. Oh, look, there's probably lots of things that you could have done differently um, sitting here 17, eight, um, you know, 17 15 years later. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think there's, there's much. I've enjoyed every, every moment of it, and we've got most of it right. So, <laughs> Well, you're still here. Yeah, exactly, and growing strongly. Well, John Hudemaker and Aaron Heary, thank you very much for joining us on Beer as a Conversation. It's been a long conversation. It's been a, a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. So thank you very much for your time and uh, all the very best for Gage Roads. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much, Matt. And that was John Hudemaker and Chief Strategy Officer Aaron Heary. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. 
You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at bruisenews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Bruise News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. <laughs>